Hi, and welcome to the South Central PA Mom Fireflies and Whoopie Pie Podcast, where we discuss motherhood, local events, and everything in between right here in South Central PA. So sit back, grab a coffee a while, and settle in for the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we have Leanne Firestone, who is the founder and director of the Neurodiverse Network. Leanne, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you are the parent of a neurodiverse child yourself, correct? Yes. Yes, I have a seven-year-old and she's neurodivergent and has um, two different diagnoses. What has that experience been like? Um, It is definitely a lot different than I expected parenting to be pretty much all of my previous expectations that I had before I had a child, I had to throw out the window. Um, (laughs) It is not the same as parenting a neurotypical child and um, the parenting books and like the parenting um, suggestions don't really line up the same way. So from Mm -hmm. the start, I've kind of had to find alternative routes and methods and Um, just find my own uh, community and find my own answers and figure things out on my own. And it's been a long journey, but um, I'm really glad to be where I'm at right now with her, with being seven and having so many resources and, and tools. Have you experienced, you know, the difficulty in getting a diagnosis? Um, Yes, unfortunately, um, we were trying to get my daughter's diagnosis and um, tools to help her during the pandemic. So that put an extra stress on things. But even without the pandemic restrictions, um, the wait list was still, I think we waited almost a year. We were on a wait list for a year and then we got dropped. And so it was like a year until we got her proper diagnosis. Uh, Luckily, I learned that I was able to just start occupational therapy and counseling without the formal diagnosis. So we were immediately able to like get some services in place and get us all some help. But yeah, the actual official diagnosis took almost a year to get in and um, yeah, it cost, you know, the copay of our insurance and it wasn't like a simple thing to do. (laughs) It was a big process. Yeah. I am. I have one son who has Down syndrome and then I have a daughter who we are currently going through this process with um, trying to see if she is on the spectrum because we, we very heavily, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like she's, she's autistic. I know it, you know, her, her team at school knows it, but it's like getting that diagnosis is so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I understand that it is, um, it is, uh, I think the diagnostic model and the diagnostic tools they're using aren't as specific as they could be and they're not updated enough. So it's it's something that takes a really long, extensive evaluation, especially in girls, in children, in women, in anybody that's learned how to mask at all. It's really hard to like find their true brain type because you're dealing with this like extra layer of trauma and and anxiety and the things that come along with like hiding your disability. So if you do the evaluation when they're a little older, it it can be hard. Um, And I think there's not a lot of specialists that um, 
you know, that's their thing. They don't, there's really no one to do, to do adult diagnoses, but in this area, it's very hard to find people like the neuropsychologists. They're just not out there and no one else will take it on as a specialty. So. Yeah, that was one thing that was just so surprising um, when we started on this whole journey was finding out how with girls in particular, um, getting a neurodivergent female Mm-hmm. A proper diagnosis is so much harder because so many of the different, you know, I hate using the word disorder because mm-hmm. I am really like a big proponent of like, like my kids that have Down syndrome and autism, like there's nothing wrong with them. It's not a disorder. It's not a yeah. defect, you know, but for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. <laughs> putting a name to whatever disorder they have, like it's so hard because the baseline is based off of boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really frustrating as a parent. Yeah, it is. And there's not a lot of new research being done to update that either. Like the diagnostic material isn't really changing that much. And we're not seeing a lot of medical research on the differences in um, gender. And I mean, I've brought this up in some of my sen- seminars, like the way the gender fluidity is in our human race, like we're missing a bunch of attributes, whether it's a male or female, <laughs> like we're still missing a bunch of attributes because we're not accounting for like these extra people. We only studied like white young males. <laughs> like that was the only studies done to like help figure out this assessment. And we're missing like adults and women and, you know, people that identify, like don't identify as a gender. Like we're not getting their attributes included in this, in this diagnostic material. And that's really harmful because then we're missing a bunch of people that could be properly diagnosed and get tools and treatment and help. <laughs> So what has it been like, I mean, you said you were able to finally, after, you know, a period of time, eventually get your diagnosis. What was, was that like helpful? Um, not really, not really. Um, to be honest, I got my diagnosis because I wanted to start a nonprofit and I was seeing the same psychiatrist that did my, or psychologist that did my diagnosis, the same specialist like for two years before I actually got the official diagnosis. So she knew I was autistic. We just never did the paperwork, but she agreed that people might question my validity if I don't have an actual diagnosis and I go out in the public eye, like as this autistic person. So I kind of did my diagnosis for other people (laughs) because um, I didn't need to know. I already knew. And the diagnostic process, like, I'm sure it's different when you're a child, but as an adult, it's kind of rough because you have to like identify all your flaws and deficits and you have to really like show where you're socially indifferent and where things don't go well for you. And it's just like four hours of talking about that and like being tested on your ability to, you know, answer questions. And, you know, I was tested on like my IQ and my processing speed. And there were so many things that went into it. But as an adult, it's kind of like demeaning and made me feel made me feel a little bad in some ways because it really highlighted my deficits in order to get the evaluation done. And luckily I had a good evaluator who didn't like give a report back that way, but you know, read it. I can't read through it very easily. It's kind of hard to like see your deficits written down on a piece of paper. So I can imagine a lot of adults don't care about getting a diagnosis, like a medical diagnosis, because it didn't get me anything. Um, I'm not eligible for any state 
state benefits and social security isn't available for um, like there's no federal benefits for adults with autism and I'm not eligible for state benefits. So um, I really can't utilize it for anything. I mean, my, my um, boss, they know I'm autistic. Anybody that would be able to like use it against me in a legal way already knows I'm autistic and I don't need to prove it with a piece of paper, but you know, it's kind of more for, yeah, like the people that don't believe it. Like, so I can show them like, no, look, I am autistic. <laughs> I went through the proper channels. And what has it been like as far as, you know, just raising a child that is not neurotypical? You know, what, what are the things that you have experienced? Um, I think it's really hard to, um, like, just go out in public and kind of appear as normal to other people. And that, um, you know, it's painful sometimes that, you know, we're out in public and I can tell that people are judging my parenting or questioning my parenting because they don't understand that she's autistic. Like something that I would say to her that you would say to a neurotypical child isn't the same and doesn't apply. And I can see people get glaring at us or not wondering why a child that's so old is behaving in a certain way or why she's talking in such a mature way when she's so young. Like I know that we get these things from strangers and um, it can be hard to deal with that. <laughs> you know, day after day, I'm pretty good at ignoring it. But that part can be really hard to kind of get judgment from people that just simply don't understand that, like how her brain works or how my brain works and that it's a little bit different. Um, you know, and it, 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 another thing is connecting with other parents that can be difficult. It, I find it way easier to connect with people that have neurodivergent kids because they understand the same kind of struggles that I'm dealing with. And sometimes if you talk to a neurotypical, like a parent of a neurotypical kid, you know, they say, well, just put them in their room and shut the door and do this. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, like, I can't even explain to you why it won't work, but it doesn't work. So um, it can be hard to connect with people in, in some ways too. Yeah. And I feel like you end up needing to explain a way, you know, or maybe you don't have to, but you feel like you need to like, you know, well, she's wearing two winter coats because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, or I know that she's not eating her goldfish. She's doing this specific thing with them, but that's just what she does, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It comes with its own level of education if you actually want to inform people. But most of the time, if it's if it's someone I don't know, I usually just play it off. But if it's someone that deserves the education, then I'll, I'll explain it to them. And yeah, but it does, um, you know, talking about my own um, autistic traits and talking about brain differences comes with so much education because the public doesn't understand brain differences unless they have them or they have someone in their family that has it. They really don't get it. So it comes with so much education. You know, I can't just say like, oh, I have sensitive hearing. I have to really explain what that means if I want someone to fully understand. I have to go into detail. Right. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think, and I mean, not being autistic myself, you know, <laughs> I can't, at least to my knowledge. And that <laughs> just getting onto a whole tangent there. Yeah. I think one of the things that you mentioned, like getting a diagnosis as an adult, um, it's, there's so many people, probably women in our generation that have no idea that they're on the spectrum because that wasn't mm -hmm. even something mentioned when we were growing up. There was this picture of autistic people that was 
well, they can't talk and they're kind of off in their little fantasy world. Right. And they're like these little savants that know, you know, random math facts and are like really good at very specific things. And of course, that's not even remotely close to true. Yeah. <laughs> culturally, that was the narrative. And girls that were autistic, it was like, well, you're just kind of weird. Mm hmm. But now that I'm seeing my daughter, you know, go through this, it's like, wow, I'm kind of recognizing anyways. Oh, but yeah. when, you know, there's, there's things that I notice that I, I can't understand what she's actually experiencing. But, you know, for example, like with hearing, um, fireworks, she's not mm -hmm. afraid of fireworks or mm -hmm. loud, you know, like she's not afraid of loud things, but it's like, she can't be around it. Mm -hmm. It, it upsets her like so much. She has to sit there and have, you know, either headphones or, you know, watch from inside. And, you know, at first for a long time in her life, I thought it was because she was scared. And then eventually mm -hmm. over a few years, like, it's not that she's scared. It's like the noise is, is literally bothering her. Mm -hmm. And I think for people that I just can't even imagine, say growing up in the eighties with autism, and there's no understanding of things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like in the past and, you know, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, like if they're autistic, they were forced to either get over, like if they're autistic and able to function well enough in society, which I should say, they were forced to get over it. <laughs> and like, if they couldn't get over it, then they developed other mental health issues like addiction and, you know, depression, anxiety, like all the other things. And, you know, instead of identifying like, oh, I'm autistic, these are my needs, I need to meet them. <laughs> but we're, there really wasn't education or anything then either. So we're just kind of now getting to a proper level of knowing. And it's not even proper yet. We still don't know enough about autism as a society, but it's getting a little better. <laughs> well, and what's really strikes me a lot of the time, and I'm sure that you would have a lot more information than me about this. Um, but we're just like kind of scratching the surface. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about people being neurodivergent, like it's so much more than just autism. You know, oh, I think yeah. that's the most well-known one, but it's just kind of mind blowing that it almost feels like, you know, what is neurotypical anyway, mm -hmm. you know, and people are so individual with their needs and, and, and there's so many different things that we should be, providing we as a culture as a society mm -hmm. accommodations and yeah. understanding for you know oh, just yeah. kind of shoving everyone in this one size fits all you know especially kids like classroom mm -hmm. for example yeah. and expecting there not to be any issues it's just kind of like a recipe for disaster oh yeah and then the accessibility that i feel like we have added in the past like 20 or 30 years has been just on top of the systems not included like we're like oh we'll add these programs for these children instead of just incorporating the whole school to be fit for all like for neurodivergent kids and then the right. neurotypical kids can fit in <laughs> like we're we're doing it the other way around when we could just be providing this inclusive service like if you put a box of fidget toys in a classroom yeah maybe they'll be distracting for like a week but then at the end of that the kids that really need it are going to utilize the fidget toys and the other kids are not and it might not be the kids that are diagnosed with autism or ADHD and have an IEP it might be someone 
and you had no idea could utilize a fidget toy to like pay attention. But like when we're giving these opportunities and making the world more inclusive, then those people take advantage of it. It makes the world a better place and like the other people don't need it. I don't know. It's like the people that need the ramp are going to use the ramp and the people that need the steps are going to use the steps. But we put both of them there for everybody to have access. (laughs) um, And that's actually a really good comparison. I try to compare um, invisible disabilities to physical disabilities a lot because it's easier for like the public to understand that way because you can see it more and you can see that there's a there's an obstacle, but it's harder to see with invisible disabilities and neurodivergent brains. So I also think that you being an autistic person yourself would probably have good perspective on um, just a lot of times I will see um, the way that autism is referred to mm-hmm. um, as like this horrible, awful, evil disease that like robbed your child from you yeah and every time I see that I just it's like my eyes twitching a little bit (laughs) (laughs) like a hundred times worse you know like as an actual autistic person that's it's so dehumanizing because autism is not something that's like you know this it's just a difference it's not something that needs to be cured yeah but then, yeah, that, the whole the whole phrase of curing autism is still not died out. People are still utilizing that phrase, and we can't cure autism. There is yeah. no cure. It's not it's not um, a disorder that involves fixing. It's a brain type, a neurological difference, and we. I think that it gets confusing for people because you know if a child is diagnosed that autistic at two and given everything they could possibly need and given like the perfect environment to grow up with maybe their autism won't affect them as much as an adult but they're still autistic but like think about like someone like me that was given zero resources like my autism did not my like autism traits didn't change they didn't like improve with development because i wasn't given all those tools so things are just as hard for me as an adult, probably a lot harder because I have to live as an adult, not just someone taking care of me like a little kid. But it's like, even if you do give someone all these tools and try to repair or fix the issues that are going on, they're still going to be autistic when they grow up. And there's some things they're going to struggle with always that you just can never fix. There's not a fix. It's, it's just a difference. (laughs) And now, like as a parent of mm-hmm. a neurodivergent child, what I mean, what do you hope for, you know, when she becomes an adult? Um, I really just want her to be happy and comfortable with herself. I have no other goal. Like I know other parents are like, I want them to live alone. I want them to have a job. I want them to have a family. Like I don't have that for her. I want her to do what makes her happy. So if that does mean some kind of like communal living for the rest of our lives, we'll figure that out. And if that means going and meeting someone and starting a family, like I support her in that, but I don't want to set up an expectation now because I don't know what will make her happy as an adult. And I don't know how she'll like what her development's going to look like and where she's going to be. So I just want to support her and just I'm just really hoping that she doesn't develop um, a masking mechanism like I did, like a coping skill of masking and hiding who you really are, because I just want her to be able to be comfortable being herself as she grows up and grows into an adult. 
And that, I think for a lot of kids who are neurodivergent, you know, for us as parents, like, I think that we are the first generation to really be pushing for a more friendly world yeah. for our children. And I don't, I don't say that to like attack previous parents, like the yeah. knowledge wasn't there. You know, I yeah. think that most of the time parents, they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. Yes. But we are the first, I think, generation that is given this better understanding and so we're trying to build this better world for mm-hmm. children that they can navigate it in a more healthy and safe way. Yeah. And um, that's probably along the lines of why you founded the Neurodiverse Network. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I I feel like even if you um, incorporate all the tools that are given, like I'm utilizing all the stuff I can for my daughter, but because she is... Um, you know, I don't want to use any term that relates to functioning, but like she has the um, a typical IQ of someone her age and like she doesn't need extra assistance in school and like she's pretty good at controlling her emotions in public. Like that kind of stuff means that it restricts us from services <laughs> because some children can't speak and some children can't eat like they have um, food restrictive um struggles and like there's things that are basic needs that get put in front of a child like mine and because she's getting help but she just isn't getting like all the help because there's other kids that need that help and there's not enough providers and there's not enough support in public schools and that kind of stuff so she's not getting like the same focused attention you know that maybe maybe someone else would get and there really aren't like social like opportunities for her where I could just feel comfortable like dropping her off somewhere and it would be safe or like that I wouldn't have to kind of hold her hand and help her with some of the social situations and like if it's a neurotypical place then people don't get that so I was like well how do I create something like this for my daughter but then also how do I create something like this for myself because I need this stuff too like I need a place to feel like I can actually just be myself and not have to worry if I'm Um, stimming, like moving in a a way that might annoy a neurotypical person, like flapping my hands or something. I don't have to explain why I'm I'm doing that if I'm in the presence of other neurodivergent people. So um, then, yeah, the idea just kind of started to come together to like, well, if I want this kind of community, I just need to create it because no one is doing that. Like there's, you know, societies that help people. There's like, community support, there's disability services, but nobody's focusing on like the community and trying to actually bring like everyone together and just bring all the resources together and have community events. And like, there's people doing it in a smaller capacity, but I want to do it. Like I want to bring everyone together because we're all struggling, whether it's with dyslexia or you're autistic, it's like, you're still struggling with similar things. And the people that need help to get through the days and the months, like those are the people that find our network and it just helps everybody feel, I don't know, stronger and better because we're together. Yeah. And I think that part of being a family that has, you know, disabilities and, you know, maybe neurodivergent parents or children, whatever the case may be, um, it's lonely. Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it can so be hard. very isolating. <laughs> even even when you have support, you can still feel like you're the only person that is dealing with this very specific thing with your child. <laughs> like it can feel very isolating. Well, and even you have support, you know, like, you know, my, my son has Down syndrome, you know, so there's, there's Gigi's Playhouse mm-hmm. as an example. But if we go to that, that's, you know, occasional events or, you know, once a week or what have you. And that's not to say that they're doing anything bad, but yeah. it's like, what about when we're going to the grocery store mm-hmm. or when I take all my kids out to do something and then he's the only person with Down syndrome there, mm-hmm. you know? It, or when they're just playing out in the neighborhood, you know, with their friends and people, you know, other kids and kids, you know, God bless them. Like, I don't, I think it's, I don't ever want to encourage a kid not to ask questions. Like by all means, ask me questions because yeah. I don't want to stigmatize disability, but they just don't understand, you know, yeah. like you said. So day to day, it's yeah. so, you feel so alone. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like culturally normalized. It's we're not seeing it until more recently. We're only seeing negative views of it in media. Like they aren't showing positive um, actors that are actually disabled that are like now they are. But, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, there was no representation. It's like just now starting to become a thing. And I think it's so important. Yeah, we don't want we don't want these children that like go to a family event to feel like, yeah, they're the only one there that is doing a certain thing or looks a certain way or is in a wheelchair. Like we want it to feel more inclusive and like they have other people they can relate to <laughs> even at kids level. They, they need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what are some of the, the services and, and events and things that you have with the neurodiverse network? Um, well, right now it's kind of um, hard to explain because we're right in a transition state. We're uh, I'm gonna be getting a building this year sometime. Everything's really hard with a nonprofit timeline to put <laughs> to put a date on it, but hopefully very soon we'll have our own facility. So all these things can happen and more. But right now our list is kind of low of what we actually want to do. And we're just doing um, like we do a bi-weekly parenting group virtually. We have a monthly Lego night that we do at a local church. And then we have um, support groups for adults. One is at the library and one is at um, an art studio. And then we I uh, think we have a couple other like little things that happen monthly. Um, but once we have a space, we want to have things like all day every day. Like we want to do a lot of things in our own, our own facility. Um, And then we've also been, we go to every outreach event and try to like have um, a lot of representation for the community and the adult community. Uh, And this year we're going to start offering, uh, taking like a pop-up calm down tent to events so we can actually have like a sensory experience at events to really show people like what it can do and how it can help children and adults like calm down if they're overstimulated. And um, I don't know, we, (laughs) we just want to do so much. And right now it feels like we're not doing a lot, but it is, it is a lot. Um, We've done like seasonal events. We've done, um, we're doing it again this year, a sensory friendly egg hunt. Um, We do a sensory friendly trick or treat event. We, um, we just try to do like seasonal things. Oh, the Santa, the Santa pictures were sensory. Well, those are, and not yeah. to like 
cut you off, but like, I no. want you to have an opportunity to explain, like that no. may not seem like a big deal, but one planning yeah. events is very time consuming and difficult in and of oh, itself. Yeah. And yeah. Two, to make it sensory friendly. <laughs> right. But I mean, that is a big deal in and of itself. Um, mm -hmm. And that was what I want you to have the opportunity to explain, like why someone who is neurodivergent, a regular egg hunt or regular trick or treating could be so overwhelming. Oh, yeah. And that's the part that, yeah, like I said, it takes so much education for the public because you just say like sensory friendly egg hunt and a neurotypical adult with no neurotypical like family members, they're not going to have any idea what that means. Like, why is it sensory friendly? Like, what does that mean? The eggs are soft. Like, they don't know. But we <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um. So with a sensory friendly egg hunt. Hold on one second. I'm going to have to get the dog. Sorry. Um, so for a sensory friendly egg hunt, that one we had like time slots because when you host an egg hunt, all the kids start at the same time and everybody runs out on the field. So if you have a child that they don't even have to be... Um, to the point where they would be like needing a wheelchair, even a little kid that can't run that fast. And like someone that has like, you know, maybe an ankle injury, like all of the stuff like prevents those kids from getting to the eggs. And it's just such a mess and you can fix it by doing time slots. Like it's not a big, a big change, but we just were like, how do we make this adaptable? Um, but we didn't just do that. We did other things. Like we had other activities that were timed out. So like the people would come a little bit early and do some of the crafts and then they would do the egg hunt and then they would get their picture. And it was just such a more relaxed flow and we had a sensory calm down room available. So if someone gets overstimulated, they can go calm down there. Uh, we just like made it normalized to have all these things in one place. And it really made families feel comfortable because some of those families would never get to go to an egg hunt because it just doesn't work for their family. Because one, like if you were to go, I would imagine like your son, you might have to help them or like do it for them because the oh, other yeah. kids understand or respect like that they need space and we just didn't want that to happen so we tried to offer different things um we did do things like hanging eggs too so they weren't on the ground so people didn't have to bend over if they like couldn't get down on the ground we tried to do things that just made it more adaptable for everyone yeah it's it's hard because on the one hand you don't want to say like oh that's i think people tend to feel defensive mm -hmm. like when you say oh well these egg hunts or trick-or-treating like it doesn't it doesn't work yeah. you know for for a lot of kids yeah. and then they get they get defensive like well it was fine for me why isn't it okay now and it, it's it's like well it's not that it's bad for a neurotypical kid this is great all the screaming and the running around it it hypes them up they're excited they have fun yeah. so for those kids it's great adding this other service or this other event is not taking away from what neurotypical people can enjoy. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't think anyone came and was like bored because it wasn't, it wasn't loud enough. <laughs> like it wasn't exciting enough. Um, and we did leave it open to everyone. Like that is, that's a big thing about like even the name of our, um, nonprofit having neurodiverse instead of neurodivergent was something we researched a lot because we don't want to, 
just be the neurodivergent community. Like, yes, we'll have support groups for autistic people or someone that's parenting a child with neurodivergent. But when we have these public events, I want the public to come. Like, I want them to see what the difference is in our events and like take it home and use it in their own events. Like, I want everyone to have these resources, not just if they're coming to a sensory friendly event. And like what people will ask, well, can anyone come? And I said, yes, this is a great opportunity for you to learn more about people with disabilities. <laughs> like we are not trying to disclude ourselves from the world and like stay in our little bubble. We want the world to adapt to us a little bit more. So we, we want everything, you know, to an extent to be open to everyone because we want more people to learn. And when they're, when we're talking about, you know, overstimulation, like mm -hmm. is that maybe something you can kind of explain, like what, why these events are overstimulating for, or can be overstimulating. Yeah. Not everyone's the same. Yeah. <laughs> why they can yeah. be overstimulating. Um, a lot of the, the most major thing is the amount of people and the noise um, and refractive noise, like inside a building. Um, if you're doing events outside, there's so much more flexibility because people don't get as overstimulated as easily and they can remove themselves from the crowd and they can remove themselves from the busy area. But when you're stuck inside a building, you have less options. Like if it's a busy packed place, you can't remove yourself. And um, places don't offer sensory relief areas and calming areas. So if someone goes to a, a busy event and it's packed the whole time, their child is just going to slowly get more and more overstimulated until, you know, that the, the pressure builds up and they pop. <laughs> like, I know that's what's going to happen because it would happen to me too as an adult, um, especially if you don't have adaptations like headphones or sunglasses or things that can help um, with those sensory sensitivities like in a busy area. Like it, you can't last long because um, I think one of the easiest ways I can explain it to people is um, I, I personally perceive things really quickly and process things really quickly and I have a good photographic memory and like looking around at stuff is just so much more for me to take in than a typical person. I feel like if I look at something, I see the pattern, the color, I think about who designed it. Like, I don't know. It's just not exactly the same as looking at <laughs> looking at something from a neurotypical point of view. So that's really overwhelming if you're in a brand new place with all these people and then add on people trying to talk to you or like ask the kid, like, what do you want to do next? Like, that's a huge decision to make when you can't even hear your parents because there's a million voices going on and um, we have you know a lot of us have really good auditory processing skills meaning I can hear the person talking to me but I can also hear like the family next to me what they're talking about and then I can hear the people across the room and I can also hear like the ticking noise from someone's phone alarm going off like I don't know I can just it overlaps and it's very hard to separate and process it all so it just feels like you're in a crazy loud stadium with everybody yelling when maybe you're only in a room with like 10 people. <laughs> so it can be so overwhelming and like doesn't seem that way because someone's like, well, it's not even loud in here. And it's like, yeah, it's not loud, but there's four different conversations and I can hear them all. So I'm not able to focus on what I'm actually doing. <laughs> and that could be so overwhelming for like a two-year-old or five-year-old that doesn't really know how to like identify and express those feelings yet. Or, you know, some of them don't even understand like that they're 
ears are taking in all this and it's stressing them out. Like they can't process all that yet. So the parents just have to offer them the headphones and they put them on and they're like, yes, this is better. But they don't know why. Like I know why because I'm a grown up and I can I can explain it to people. But yeah, every a lot of that stuff is just so overstimulating and overwhelming. And if we take away some of the people and we add some calming adaptations and normalize headphones and normalize low lighting and less, you know, distractions, like it can make everybody a little happier. Yeah. And what would, you know, it, it, when you say you go to other events, for example, and you have like a calming, like sensory tent, like what would that be like? Um, it'll have walls on the sides um, to keep everything feeling kind of secluded. Like, so um, they're probably, we haven't ordered a tent yet because we're doing a lot of research because there'll probably be some windows. So if we need lighting, we can. Um, we're being so picky down to like the color of tent we're choosing because we want to make sure it's the right color inside, but doesn't absorb heat. And, you know, we have to think about all these things because they're all sensory related, you know. And inside the tent, we will have um, it be a darker, calming feeling, not a bright environment. Um, and hopefully some like sensory lighting of different kinds, whether it's um, like a bubble lamp that changed colors, lava lamp, things that we can travel with um, that are safe. We have a few already, but we're going to be um, ordering more and adding a couple things in. But we have like hammock swing chairs that pop up. They're very cool. They're like folding chairs, but they're a hammock swing. Um, we have like a bungee chair that you sit in and, and you can bounce like while you're sitting and that travels really easily. So we'll be bringing like sensory um, friendly seating and lighting and the adaptations like that. But then we'll also have like a basket of headphones that are disposable. So if they need to take them with them out back out to the event, they can. And we'll of course have a box of fidget toys and um, things that are like sensory soothing, like visually soothing, like maybe um, something you know glittery and things that are tactile and just stuff that can distract people for five or ten minutes from the overwhelming event that's going on outside and it's almost like a recharge <laughs> you know for me that could keep me at an event a lot longer but if i didn't have that resource i would need to leave or go to my car and come back like i need that reprieve once in a while and so do a lot of um people with neurodivergent brains, not only autism, ADHD is very similar for feeling this like overwhelmed processing kind of feelings. And we just need a break sometimes. But I think that what is likely a huge difference is that now you are an adult mm -hmm. and understand <laughs> those feelings and so you can communicate them, but then you have a child who is autistic or neurodivergent and they're feeling all these things and they don't understand why and they can't communicate why. Oh, definitely. And so then I, people can see them and they are being judgmental or, you know, unaccepting. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that before, um, before like a child can talk developmentally, you know, a baby, an infant, like I have this theory that colic is you know, neurodivergent brain style, <laughs> because like this baby's crying all the time. What if they're having sensory sensitivities? Like, how would they know? How would you know that like, they don't like bright light? 
like more than another baby or like they don't actually like socks they want their socks off their feet all the time and like you might not figure that out until they're a year and a half and can grab them and pull them off like but maybe they were crying for the first six months of their life because they hate things touching their toes but like yeah how are we supposed to know that with these like infants that can't can't give us any answers and then you know the children too they they don't have the processing power to figure that all out yet they're just not there well and even when they can talk you yeah know, like my daughter the <laughs> one that is on you know is on the spectrum um she's 10 yeah her language skills are developing more slowly i mean she can mm. talk you know she can definitely communicate and speak in yeah. sentences and all that but by that i mean when you ask her questions for example it takes her a while and that's written into her iep like she needs yeah. time yeah. to process what's being said and then in her mind you know figure out what it is she's trying to express yeah and there are so many times where she just it's like she doesn't even know how to explain what is going on in her mind and that's not like a failing on her part. It's just, you know, there were, again, as an adult, like when you give the example of, you know, well, I can hear all these different conversations and I can also hear someone's phone and, and so on. I mean, imagine a nine-year-old trying to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. They're just going to tell you it's loud. <laughs> how, you, how would they explain that? Like they yeah. can't, they don't have the tools to do that because they probably don't even understand it themselves. Yeah. And I think the big thing is we didn't like I didn't understand that everybody else didn't feel that way. That was like a big mis misconnection that I had there. It was like, oh, everyone hates these noises and everyone can hear the refrigerator humming until I I read like these memes that are like, no, it's just you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so not everybody hates like the feeling of microfiber towels, you know, like to the point <laughs> where it makes them like throw them across the room. It's like, oh, no, that's just an autistic thing. But yeah, like a child doesn't know that. They just assume that like everyone is feeling discomfort right now. So they don't see a difference in their discomfort. It's hard to identify it. So when you are looking ahead at the future for the neurodiverse network, you know, mm -hmm. what, what kind of things are you hoping to accomplish? Um, well, to start, we're hoping that the community center really brings a lot of people together and can help people connect within our community, whether that's families or, um, adults. Um, we are really trying to help the adult community because there's a lot of services that just disappear when you turn 18. And there's not a lot of foundations that are trying to connect the autistic or ADHD adult community. And a lot of us need support to function. So we just like are having trouble with life. So we need the support outlet and we need you know, resources. And so I really just want to help everybody to find those. Um, we don't want to turn into a place that provides them. Like we don't want to have the therapist there and we don't want to have the resources there. We want to connect everybody to them. And we just want to be like a safe community place. Um, I really want to, I'm going to, I don't want to, I'm going to have the gym be adult, adult safe too. Like I want adults to be able to use the sensory swings and the um, crash pads because there's no, there's absolutely no place like that. 
that an adult could go and it's normalized for them to use those things, especially without a kid. Like even at the trampoline park, adults look at me funny because I do like flips and stuff on the trampoline because a lot of adults don't even get, they don't even go on the trampolines with their kids. And I just want a place where it's like normalized to do these things and it's normal to hang upside down and have a conversation with someone if that's what's giving you like a sensory relief. Um, and we, I think another big part of the sensory gym will be that people get to try things. Um, we don't even talk about how expensive it is to be disabled in this country, but it is. And a lot of the tools that I want to try or I want my kid to try, they cost 50 to hundreds and thousands of dollars. Some of the sensory equipment cost over like two grand just to buy something. Like I really would love, I would benefit so much from one of those wheels that squishes you but the cheapest one you could get is $1,500 and they're not for adults they're for children so I would have to buy like an adult size that's probably like $4,000 like I can't afford something like that just for like some sensory relief so if we can have a gym where we have these things and people can just use them for free or they can come test it and be like wow I really benefit from this swing I should buy one and then because we're a nonprofit, we would have grant services available so they can help afford it or we can give them a swing because maybe we'll have donations from the swing company because of you know all the all the service we've done together <laughs> like we just want to have resources as many resources as we can and um make them really non-restrictive because that's another thing that we find too that you have to qualify for a lot of services and resources in this state and um, if you have an income and a household and you have two incomes, if you're married, um, that affects all of those things and you really aren't eligible for services and help anymore. So then everything you're doing is coming out of pocket and it can be really hard. So I just want to provide like a place where, you know, people can come for free and relax and we'll have tools and services for free that will help them. And I do want to have like a food pantry and um, help people with, you know, living. <laughs> I just want to do services that help people. Um, and then eventually our long-term goals will, will look a little bit different. Um, after we have the center established, like I said, we want to offer some grants to the community, um, but we also want to do much bigger things. We want to um, offer equal opportunity housing at some point for neurodivergent people. That's really become on my list because as I've gotten more and more into working with the local community just over the past two years, housing is the biggest disaster. Like people can't afford it. Um, they don't have housing. They're living with someone they don't want to live with. Like there's so many issues going on and I feel like people could benefit from a community and affordable housing and a place that is just like neurodivergent accepting <laughs> that your neighbors will understand you a little bit. So I have big dreams for stuff like that, but you know, it's all, it's all like, you know, in my life plan, it's not happening in the next six months or anything, but um, we did just sign with a development company that helps nonprofits to grow. So we're really hoping that things kind of fast forward here. And I want to provide jobs for myself and other neurodivergent people. I want to help provide people with a salary and, a, you know, a, like not just a job, like a, a reason to, you know, get up and be happy. And I want to, I want to help people. So I just, we want to do so much and we have a big team that's helping to push everything forward. And it's just really exciting that it's like all coming to fruition now. <laughs> well, that's, and that all sounds like 
<laughs> I mean, just a really amazing resource. Yeah. yeah, it's just like the resource we all need. It's basically like when you look out there and you're like, oh, there's no resources. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to fix that spot where people are like, oh, there's no help. I'm trying to fill that gap and really give help to people that need it and aren't aren't receiving it at this point. Well, thank you so much for your time and yeah. for being here and talking about all this. And hopefully it has been educational um, for our listeners. And I will make sure to um, include links and everything with information um, in our show notes. Yes, definitely. On our, our, we purposefully tried to make our website pretty accessible, but it's still a work in progress. Um, but on our website, we have like lists of additional resources that are local to our area, and then a couple national and um, and um, global ones. And then we also have like all of our events on the website calendar. Um, you can find a blog that's written by myself and other neurodivergent voices. So you can read things that neurodivergent adults say and learn more about our brains. Um, and we also have inclusion seminar on there because we wanna educate the community and eventually we wanna do more outreach and education too, to try to get people to understand neurodivergent brains a little bit more and yeah yeah and that that's all really important. everybody should go to the website and it can find all the information they need and yeah i want i want people to be educated and learn more and get involved oh for sure so thank you again and i hope you have a great week thank you i appreciate you having me it was great talking to you That's our episode for this week. New episodes will drop every Monday. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss out. Leave us a review and share to help other moms find us. Thanks for stopping by the Fireflies and Whoopie Pie podcast, the only podcast by South Central PA moms for South Central PA moms. Until next time.